If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. By subscribing, you will get early access and free downloads. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing you all sorts of interesting guests, telling it like it is from way outside the mainstream box. I come on here every Friday evening from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern by way of Revolution.Radio, the finest of listener-sponsored networks. Please sponsor Revolution.Radio and keep this kind of free speech radio on the air. Speaking of free speech, we're seeing some serious pushback against free speech in the alternative media these days, and probably nothing has pushed back harder than the nobody died at Sandy Hook issue. Currently, the most popular alternative media figure in America, Alex Jones, has been slapped with a big libel judgment around the Sandy Hook issue. And it has this whole issue has been used in so many different ways to justify the censorship that we're now seeing on so many different fronts. Tonight, we're going to consider whether that issue may have been manipulated precisely to get the results that we're seeing. In the second hour, Dave Gary of American Free Press was the original publisher of Jim Fetzer's edited book, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, will come on to ask whether he is responsible for Alex Jones's lawsuit. Dave Gary has rethought a lot of these issues over uh, over time, and so we'll find out where he has arrived at at this point, considering the kinds of issues that I will be talking about in the first hour with Ron Unz of the Unz Review. Ron just published a brilliant essay, Alex Jones, Cass Sunstein, and Cognitive Infiltration, and he speculates about whether the Sandy Hook issue may have been manipulated in precisely the way that Michael Collins Piper told us it was a decade ago, and uh, whether that kind of manipulation could still be going on around the COVID issue. So let's go ahead and, and get into it with uh, perhaps the, the key figure in the alternative media today, Ron Unz. Hey, welcome, Ron. How are you? Hey, great to be here. Great to have you back. So, uh, your latest article is sure to um, upset certain people. Uh, we've we've seen you know you've gone up against a certain element of the more sort of what shall we say excitable folks in the alternative media world and the conspiracy crowd uh, on COVID and uh, now on Sandy Hook, and of course there's a parallel uh, between what you're saying on the on, on one issue and and the other, and you kind of bring it together in this new article uh, looking at the possibility that some excitable people may be actually being deliberately excited by bad actors and led down the garden path. So maybe you can talk about uh, how you uh, came to 
that interpretation and, and what evidence that supports it. Sure. Well, I mean, the whole thing is I, I really have only very loosely followed Alex Jones or the Sandy Hook issue over the years. In other words, I really didn't pay a great deal of attention to it. But obviously, with the recent trial judgment against Alex Jones, which, you know, has, I think, a pretty good chance of destroying his media empire and effectively eliminating probably the most prominent conspiracy oriented figure in America. Obviously, it's, you know, something that could have a tremendous amount of impact on the political landscape. And also with Alex Jones being having been become one of the key figures backing Donald Trump during his run for the presidency. And afterwards, I mean, the political implications are really quite dramatic. Now, you know, as I started looking into the issue a little bit more and checking also the history of it, I mean, as far as I can tell, you know, most of the people who have the more outlandish views about Sandy Hook, that, you know, nobody died there, that nothing happened, that it was all simply a sort of conspiracy put on by hired crisis actors and that sort of thing, there didn't really seem a lot of basis for it. And uh, one thing I'd done over the last few years is read quite a lot of books by Michael Collins Piper, who really for several decades had probably been one of the most um, thoughtful conspiracy researchers in America, starting off with his obvious analysis of the Kennedy assassination, you know, final judgment, which really I I think is very much a seminal work in terms of understanding that event, which other people really hadn't focused on before. So the whole thing about it is it was interesting that the last one of the last books that Michael Collins Piper wrote, uh, published back in, I think it was 2013, dealt with a wide range of the major conspiracies that he believed were real and dramatic in American society. The JFK assassination, the RFK assassination, the Oklahoma City bombings, obviously the 9-11 attacks, and quite a number of other incidents. But he argued that what had really happened in the last few years was that some of the uh, figures in the establishment, in a sense the arch opponents of the conspiracy movement, had come up with a very effective new tactic for defeating and um, really disorienting people who are trying to research the underlying truths of these events in our society. And that was, in effect, um, an idea that originally had been proposed by Cass Sunstein in in a paper that he published in 2008, primarily focused on the 9-11 attacks, but on the broader issue of conspiracy in general. And then uh, a day or a year or so later, he became a senior official in the uh, Obama administration. And so his ideas really became much better known within the conspiracy community. And Sunstein's very clever idea was, in effect, to use um, the energy of the conspiracy movement against it, uh, to use a sort of form of intellectual jujitsu against it, which is basically to infiltrate conspiracy activists or conspiracy websites with a certain number of operatives who would begin just on, you know, in online circles spreading wild ideas that might be very attractive to the more excitable members of the conspiracy community and lead them off 
into blind alleys and really. No, no, right. Them... I, I don't. I don't think Gessenstein said it quite that plainly. He said he talked about quote co- quote unquote cognitively infiltrating conspiracy movements in such a way as to uh, spread quote unquote beneficial cognitive diversity. So I think the the reader has to actually make the inference that he's talking about spreading uh, crazy ideas. You're perfectly correct. In other words, I, I guess uh, what I was doing was sort of. Uh, going based on the interpretation that many individuals then took from his words after his uh, journal article really became well known. But the whole idea is basically that, you know, it's very difficult. And back then, while the Internet was still much more free than it's since become before, Facebook and YouTube really had become such powerful gatekeepers. It was very difficult to forcefully crack down on conspiracy websites or email lists or, you know, means of spreading unorthodox ideas like that. So the idea simply was to sort of lead those individuals in directions they might not otherwise go. And uh, the example he really pointed to, which was sort of the main focus of his concern, was the 9-11 movement. And in 2008, more and more people were becoming very suspicious of the official 9-11 story and were thinking that government or government operatives might have been much more actively involved than anybody would admit at the time, and the movement seemed to really be growing. So, you know, the whole thing is afterwards, a lot of people, you know, decided that many of the Effort, many of the sort of divergent paths that the 9-11 movement then subsequently took might have been paths that had sort of been assisted by establishmentarian operatives who wanted to ensure that um, the movement was unsuccessful in gaining the sort of critical momentum and media credibility it might have gained. And in fact, some of the things that I think appeared probably a few years afterwards, and you'd really have much better recollection of the history and trajectory than I would since you were actively involved at the time. And back then, I really wasn't paying any attention to the 9-11 movement. But for example, uh, there was an um, uh, individual, I think her name was Judy Woods, who came up with some outlandish idea about the World Trade Center being destroyed by a mysterious energy weapon or something like that? Yes, yes. I, I was actually in the middle of kind of a, a firestorm around that. And interestingly, I, I saw the most productive 9-11 activist here in Wisconsin be completely neutralized when he fell in love with Judy Wood and her idea and decided that everybody who disagreed was an evil government operative. Um, and and then he, he was only – there's a, another couple who were also – pretty effective activists who became less effective after running into that concept as well. So, yeah, I, I, I find that uh, entirely plausible, although I'm not sure that Judy Wood would have been deliberately spreading this stuff. And I'm not sure that all of her work is entirely uh, useless, but the way that it was used, uh, the way that it became a kind of a, a meme among people who uh, held it up as a sort of a, a badge of being more radical a truther than thou, and then spending all their time fighting with other people uh, about it. Uh, it was very, very destructive. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly the impression I'd gotten when I you know, read some of the accounts of that period. Uh, so, I mean, I, again, I, I really would doubt that someone like uh, Judy Woods or any of these other individual activists 
were knowingly damaging the sort of movement that they were a part of. But it's also a question of you know how their work became promoted. So, for example, when you have dozens of individual people promoting different theories or different ideas, it wouldn't take that much effective outside pressure to promote certain of those theories and not promote others. And if the most implausible or unlikely theories are the ones that receive the extra push, they can then become very significant or even dominant within the sort of uh, conspiracy community of people who are looking into 9-11. Another example, are all these people making claims that the World Trade Center was destroyed by nuclear weapons, which, again, seems quite unlikely to me just because there was no radiation detected afterwards. But I, I think one of the issues also is that the sort of people who are willing to step outside the official narrative on any dramatic issue like this, you know, are willing to go against the New York Times or willing to go against Fox News or willing to go against the sort of gatekeepers of establishmentarian views, those individuals many times tend to be, you know, really quite excitable, quite sometimes eager to look for the most outlandish or surprising or dramatic story they can find. And so, whereas most ordinary people are very unwilling to look at anything that the mainstream media doesn't endorse or that you know top political figures don't support, the small fraction of people who are willing to look in those areas, who are willing to go against the conventional wisdom, sometimes are especially eager to look at the most remarkable and exciting ideas they can find. And so, in, in effect, you know, as I put it, I think, in my article, they're sometimes very eager to nibble the poison bait that then establishment operatives can set out for them. And, you know, then do a lot of damage to their own views and their own positions. And in fact, I can think of really quite a few individuals who in various issues have done some really outstanding work. I mean, I've published their articles. I've been very impressed by the research they've done on historical issues, on some of these um, you know, conspiratorial events of the recent past, and have really done outstanding work. But then sometimes those same individuals, you know, may go a little bit too far in certain other areas and then endorse, you know, really quite outlandish ideas that if they became widely known might damage their credibility and the important work that's done otherwise. So, you know, it's basically just a risk that um you know all of us have to take that we don't become so enraptured by you know, remarkable and exciting ideas that we sort of lose our common sense and go after them. You know, whether it's mysterious energy weapons or nuclear explosions, explosives that don't leave radiation or, you know, so many other remarkable things. Okay, I keep, I, keep in mind, though, Ron, that many people might respond by saying, well, one person's outrageous, outlandish idea is another person's seemingly sensible and true idea. Uh, and in, in some cases, the biggest third rail issues, the things that make you look the most extreme and crazy when you talk about them are things that might conceivably be true. In, in, in the case of your work, for example, there are those who see your work on the Holocaust issue as being this kind of extreme third rail thing that's going to discredit work you do on other issues. 
And with with the uh, with the website, the uh, presence of so many racialists, people who have a discourse on race that is seemingly almost designed to be vilified by the current zeitgeist, uh, also could discredit a lot of the work at the at the UNS review. And so it, it, it seems that there's a certain subjectivity there in terms of you know, and also there are two different issues. One is. Uh, is, is this particular discourse uh, that is so um, alienating to people in the mainstream, is it true or is it plausible? Uh, and then secondly, uh, is it going to be seen as plausible and okay to talk about by the mainstream, right? And, and you know, there might be perfectly true things. Let's say, for instance, that there is a good case for nukes at the World Trade Center. I'm not sure there is. But uh, if that were the case, it might still seem outlandish to you and to others. Um, but again, the, the issue of whether there's evidence for something, whether it turns out to be a relatively reasonable uh, discourse is a different issue, really, from from how it's going to be perceived by the mainstream audience. Uh, so h- how do we deal with that dichotomy? Oh, I agree 100% with what you're saying. And in fact, on some of these sort of outlandish views, uh, to be perfectly honest, I've been per- I've been certainly willing to actually publish them on our website. In other words, you know, ideas that I've sometimes been concerned might weaken the credibility of some of the people promoting them, you know, if they sort of become widely known and associated with the very solid work they've done otherwise. So, you know, again, since we're an alternative website, we have very, very loose standards of what we publish in all these different areas. And so I'm really talking about, you know, each of us individually trying to be very careful that we maintain our own particular credibility by only investing our credibility in subjects where we feel that there's a strong case to be made. And so, you know, certainly somebody could argue that many of my articles might do damage to the credibility of some of my other articles, but I just on all of them feel that there's a strong case to be made. And so it's all sort of a judgment call that each of us has to make, you know, individually. Right. And and so Absolutely. and that's very different than, for example, a website that is sort of an alternative media website that publishes a very wide range of conflicting views on all these different issues. So, you know, it's more that if I were sort of advising some of these particular writers, I would probably advise them to be sort of maybe more cautious about some of the things they say in a given subject rather than to being be concerned that they're publishing their views on a website that has a wide range of other views in that regard. And in fact, in some cases, I sort of sometimes persuaded people to publish some of their articles under a pseudonym so that, you know, the work they do in those other areas doesn't necessarily contaminate or damage the work they've done, you know, in different subjects. And so, and that's a very reasonable approach to take. In other words, if somebody feels very strongly about a given issue, it might make sense for them, but if they're persuaded that that issue might damage their credibility on other subjects, it might really make sense for them to use a different pen name for, you know, those particular issues, because then the ideas get out there and they're promoted in the way they would be. And, you know, since nobody's ever heard of the of the author in any event, you know, using a series of different names for that is probably the most effective solution. 
with, with regard, though, to some of the issues, say, about 9-11 and the particular mechanism used for the destruction of the World Trade Center, you know, whether it was a nuclear device or an energy weapon or things like that. One point I've made in some of my own writings is a complete newcomer to the 9-11 issue until a few years ago, I'd really paid very little attention to it. It seemed to me that a lot of the focus in the last you know, few years, last maybe eight or 10 years on 9-11 had been the particular mechanism by which the attack took place. In other words, how the World Trade Center was destroyed, whether it was destroyed by conventional explosives, whether it was destroyed by nano something called nanothermite, or you know, more uh, more dramatically, whether it was a nuclear device or an energy weapon or things like that. And the argument really I've made is that, to some extent, you know, I think that question is really not as interesting as the question of who was responsible for the attack because you know so long as enough evidence is accumulated so that individuals would agree that the conventional story the official narrative of 19 hijackers arab hijackers armed with box cutters you know is a fiction and that the attack took place in a way that required massive and advanced resources, you know, whether wiring a building for explosives or using military-grade technology such as nanothermite or some of these, you know, more extreme devices. You know, once you recognize that the existing story is false and is simply a fiction, I think at that point it becomes much more interesting to ask yourself what really happened and who was responsible rather than the yes. particular technology used in the attack. And so, you know, again, it, obviously it would be very interesting if a nuclear weapon were used, had been used to destroy the World Trade Center or a space energy ray or anything like that. But, I mean, I, I think one reason those ideas became so widespread within the 9-11 truth movement is that they were a very exciting means of capturing attention and capturing energy and focusing on the mechanism and what happened rather than starting to ask why it happened or who was responsible, which I think are the much more important issues. Absolutely. There's a parallel there with the JFK assassination and the magic bullet theory. The real significance of the magic, magic bullet theory, just like the real significance of the issues around the demolition of the Trade Center is that the official story cannot be true. It's ridiculous, in fact. And and that once that's been proven, one can either start trying to figure out who did it and why, as you suggest, or one could get bogged down in arguing about, well, how many shooters were there and from what positions were they shooting and what kinds of guns were they shooting and so on, getting into a lot of logistical sort of engineering analyses of bullet paths and such, likewise with the demolition argument. And I think that that actually is counterproductive in a number of ways, and one of them is it makes us look too geekish, like the ordinary people uh, who haven't you know, gotten into these issues when they hear us uh, going off in these really kind of, you know, uh, abstruse discussions of uh, the logistics and the engineering of bullets and demolitions, they think that we're we're weird. We're, we're off, you know, somewhere far from from the kind of territory that they're familiar with. 
and they uh, then kind of consign us to irrelevance. And I, I think that, in a way, when the CIA put out the con, you know, conspiracy theorist meme uh, in response to the Garrison investigation and the, and the JFK investigations of, uh, from citizens, that that was partly what they were trying to encourage, was the idea that these conspiracy theorists are a bunch of uh, geeks uh, who are uh, not uh, kind of normal people. And and so I, I think you're right, that, that if we want to get a better welcome from more ordinary people, we should sound a little more ordinary, a little bit less like wildly obsessed with the uh, logistics of magic bullets and, uh, and exotic demolition modalities. Exactly, exactly. And also the technological issues are really, in many cases, I would think so eye-glazingly dull. In other words, talking about trajectories, talking about specific positions, all of these charts showing allegedly where the gunmen were when they shot Kennedy. I mean, it's not the sort of thing I think most people would be tremendously interested in. And it would take a tremendous amount of personal research and effort to really be able to contribute to those issues. So in a sense, it's sort of losing the, missing the forest for the trees and, you know, sort of really missing the sort of essence of the issue, which is what actually happened and why it happened. And, you know, I really, it it would be interesting to know, you know, the historical trajectory of the movement and why it was that, you know, certain people became so focused on those technological details, both in the case of the JFK assassination and the case of the 9-11 attacks and, you know, other things like that as well, rather than just sort of asking the simple basic questions, which, you know, I think is probably would be of broader interest to the public. So, I I mean, I agree entirely. In other words, it, it seems to me it's a very effective tactic to sort of shift the debate in a direction that seems uninteresting to most ordinary people, that absorbs a tremendous amount of time and effort on those technological questions, and also leads to all sorts of internal disputes over those sorts of technical details that you know sometimes would lead to the formation of different factions in the 9-11 movement or the JFK movement, where you have people bitterly quarreling over things that you know, really probably wouldn't be that interesting to the general public. That's right. I think that's one reason that James Douglas's JFK book stands high above most of the others is that he's able to put together a narrative that has a certain kind of you know, human interest quality by perhaps exaggerating JFK's heroism and uh, you know, focusing on the issue of war and, and peace in such a way that kind of ordinary uh, sort of peace, <laughs> pro-peace Americans can relate to it. And uh, we, we probably need more of that kind of approach with uh, some of these other issues. And, and so I, I think that the alienating quality of these excruciating uh, logistical disputes about demolition modalities and magic bullets, uh, now that's, uh, those are alienating enough. But then when we start talking about uh, nobody died and the people who say that they their children died or whatever are crisis actors, I think ordinary people are going to find that even more alienating. And that was the point that, that Mike Piper raised in some of those uh, chapters that you quoted in your article. And I, I think you're onto something there that if, if nobody died as Sandy Hook didn't exist, then the bad guys would have had to invent it. 
Exactly, exactly. And the truth is, I really, until recently, hadn't paid much attention to what might be called the sort of these conspiratorial issues. But probably for the last five or six or seven years, I've seen endless discussions on the Internet, including most recently my website, you know, claims that whenever a terrorist action took place, whenever there was a terrorist attack anywhere, there were immediate claims that, oh, it wasn't real. Somebody would look at a photograph and say, oh, that photo can't be real. Everybody would say, oh, it's crisis actors, crisis actors. And I mean, that seemed very ridiculous to me. I mean, just on a very simple basis, the notion that some organized group would hire dozens of actors, paid actors, makeup artists, special effects experts, simply to create a scene that then any of those individuals later could explain what had happened. In other words, you'd have dozens and dozens of people who would know the truth of what had happened. I mean, all those witnesses. And I mean, that, that seemed to me a very strange way of going about creating a terrorist incident. I mean, to put it very crudely, it's easier to hire a couple of terrorists to launch an attack than to hire 20 or 30 or 40 times as many ordinary Hollywood people to sort of produce something that you know looked like that. And, uh, and just, you know, so you had all of these people, in a sense, lured down the rabbit hole of believing that nothing is real, scrutinizing every single photograph, every single video frame, in a way that really absorbed their energies in meaningless terms. And, you know, the truth is, there seems, from what I've read, I mean, I've read quite a few books on some of these terrorist incidents, especially the ones in the Middle East with ISIS and Europe, the ones in France over the last few years. And it seems that there really are some extremely suspicious elements of those attacks, and they might very well have been carried out by governmental intelligence services of one country or another, with ISIS also possibly being a product of Western intelligence agencies. But you know that's very different i mean those there in those cases there really is a broader narrative involved while on the other hand simply claiming that the terrorist attacks had never occurred and that you know the dozens of people killed never existed they never lived they were all created by you know by leading a false trail i mean that just seemed very very unlikely especially given the number of people who would have to be involved in the conspiracy with most of the conspirators being ordinary citizens or people who, for example, work in Hollywood or, you know, hired actors. So, I mean, the trouble is, you know, a lot of people get involved in what might be called the conspiracy movement are people who have a tendency to sort of see conspiracies or see plots everywhere and therefore are especially vulnerable to that sort of strategy of creating plots that you know, probably don't really have much reality behind them. So in other words, you know, if it comes down to it, I think it's a lot easier for the establishment to simply have a few operatives go online and promote certain outlandish ideas or set up, for example, Facebook pages or produce very realistic, very high-quality YouTube videos to promote certain outlandish ideas and, you know, do so in perfect safety than to hire, for example, dozens of makeup artists or other operatives to produce something like this.
And, and, and that's the whole thing. That that tendency then is something obviously, you know, the establishment easily can use when other ideas come forth. In other words, you know, the, the argument that Michael Piper uh, made was that as far as he could tell, probably Sandy Hook was exactly as it seemed. In other words, there was a massacre of school children. But then the government operatives used that opportunity then to implement the strategy of leading conspiracy activists down a false trail and doing so very, very effectively. So that, you know, for years afterwards, everybody in the conspiracy movement was talking about crisis actors. And the same thing also happened with the Boston bombing. And the point that Piper made is that, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how many witnesses there were at the Boston bombing. I mean, it probably would be, uh, uh, the crowds probably numbered many, many thousands or even tens of thousands. And obviously all of them saw the reality of the bombing that took place. And when they went back home again and discovered that a few conspiracy activists on the Internet were claiming that nothing had actually happened, it would cause a very sizable fraction of the American public to really write off conspiracy activists as basically a bunch of lunatics or gullible fanatics or that sort of thing. But, but right, Ron, I need to sort of flesh out that narrative a little bit sure. because uh, I, I was on that Boston bombing uh, conspiracy bandwagon from the get-go because, uh, and, and it wasn't that suddenly the nobody died uh, crisis actor crowd just showed up immediately. Uh, what actually happened was that the the police put out their request for help identifying uh, the figures in in the uh, photographs, uh, and of course they were honing in on on the Tsarnaev brothers. But the photographs also captured these guys uh, in dressed in black with Kraft International logos on their hats and uh, large, full backpacks on their backs. Uh, and then one of them was captured uh, in a photo running away uh, shortly after the explosion with no backpack on his back. Uh, and the F FBI later provided photos of the exploded backpack that had the bomb in it, and that was clearly the one, uh, one of the ones worn by these Kraft International operatives. So they got caught in real time, even before uh, the Sarnev, the first Sarnev got uh, shot and run over. Uh, the conspiracy world had already identified these Kraft International operatives as, as the real bombers, and I think that was threatening the people who had organized it. And so then it was somewhat later that we started getting all of this nonsense about the crisis actors and so on. Ah, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, again, I, I've never really investigated the Boston bombing, but what you're saying would make tremendous sense. Because in a sense, you know, in a situation where there suddenly was a very effective trail to what really had happened. And, you know, I, I don't know enough about the Boston bombing to really be able to judge the story. But if, as you say, evidence very quickly was found revealing that the official story was false and that the bombing had been orchestrated by operatives of some sort, obviously the way to cover up that true conspiracy would be to release you know, a different conspiracy that would get people to go down false trails and claim that no bombing had taken place and really discredit everybody involved with questioning the establishment narrative on that. Because, you know, obviously, if there are people actively on the Internet 
promoted on the internet saying that no bombing had taken place and that they were all crisis actors. Most ordinary people would be so disgusted by such a ridiculous idea that they wouldn't pay then any attention to people who'd actually been able to gather evidence of who really had been behind the bombing. Is that the sort of thing that happened? In other words, did it successfully mislead a lot of the conspiracy uh, researchers to go down that false trail of claiming no bombing had taken place? Yes, I think it did, because I think those photographs of the Kraft International operatives are so damning that they're almost sort of the equivalent of the Building 7 footage uh, and Larry Silverstein's confession regarding 9-11. In other words, this is material that anybody can look at and quickly draw conclusions that are extremely damning to the official story. And and this has been uh, ascertained by some very respectable, mainstream-trained investigative journalists um, uh, people like, uh, Dave Lindorf, uh, is, you know, he's, he's done really good work on this. He's not a conspiracy kind of guy by any means, but, uh, he, he did investigate this and came to the obvious conclusion. So, uh, then a lot of the more extensive work on the Boston bombing, like, uh, Jim Fetzer's book, uh, a follow-up to his nobody died at Sandy Hook was nobody died at Boston either. And that oh, really? Focuses, he, he said yeah. that? Yeah, oh, yeah. And, and so that, that book does include <laughs> some of the, the, the good evidence, uh, which, of course, the, the real evidence here, that the, the million-dollar you know, elephant in the room, is, is those photos of the Kraft International guys and then the, the, back, the exploded backpack, which was obviously on the back of the Kraft guys. And then you look at the photos of the Sarnayev brothers, and their backpacks couldn't possibly hold these uh, pressure cooker bombs the size that, they, that the FBI says they were. So that evidence is is really strong. And so, yeah, that's in Jim's book. But he's leading with this idea that nobody died, which kind of ruins the uh, (laughs) the whole thing uh, in terms of the public outreach. So, yeah, I I think that that's another good uh, case study of what you're talking about. That's really I I hadn't been aware of those details. And that's a really outstanding example Uh, from what I'd read at the time. There did seem to be quite a lot of suspicious elements in the case against those two Chechen brothers. So I was really suspicious of whether the exact story, the official story was true or not. But I'd never looked into it at the point where, you know, I'd been aware of the evidence you say. And that's a perfect example. In other words, I was very well aware that the Internet was filled with people claiming no bombing had actually taken place and it had all been crisis actors. I'd seen that everywhere. But I didn't see anywhere the evidence you're talking about, about, you know, implicating who really might have been responsible. So, I mean, the way you sort of hide strong evidence that can't really easily be debunked is to cover it with a huge mountain of ridiculous evidence to hide it away that way. And that sounds like, unfortunately, that's exactly what happened in that regard. And another perfect example which you know really came up much more recently, and actually I'd looked into at the time, is the whole Pizzagate controversy. Because you know, as in the uh, months leading up to the 2016 presidential election, the um, the emails, the private emails of uh, John Podesta, had been uh, leaked to WikiLeaks, and so you know, 
people started going through those emails and finding really some very, very bizarre material in there. I mean, material that really led perfectly reasonable people to suspect that there were, you know, um, that there were very, well, I mean, basically that there might be pedophile ring at the top of the Democratic Party or political operatives in uh, D.C. And, and that became a very large issue on the Internet, you know, leading up to the election and even afterwards. And, uh, you know, I, at the time, at first I didn't really pay any attention to it, but as it started getting more and more visibility and attention, I looked into it. And the evidence really found was extremely suspicious. I mean, the, you know, a, a great deal of material on social media, a lot of, you know, other things like that. And really, most of it, much of it gathered from perfectly respectable mainstream media outlets. And then that really was the point at which the first major crackdown on the Internet really took place right around the time of the election or immediately afterwards, with YouTube suddenly starting to ban videos, with um, efforts made to label a very wide range of alternative media outlets as Russian propaganda websites and that sort of thing. And, you know, the combination of all those factors just made me extremely suspicious of what was really going on, especially because of some of the evidence for it really seemed quite strong. And then, you know, as then that issue continued, it then within oh, probably about six months or a year had shifted into the whole QAnon issue, which was somewhat related, but, you know, basically presented some of the same ideas, but laced with a tremendous amount a very bizarre and unlikely material that most normal people would consider totally ridiculous. And so, you know, in a sense, the way you hide evidence that can't easily be debunked because it comes from mainstream media outlets sometimes is to fill it, is to camouflage it with a tremendously large quantity of, you know, extremely outrageous, erroneous material that then, you know, causes most ordinary people to really pay no attention to it. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's true. And additionally, before even before you bring Q into it, I think the Pizzagate story uh, was partly countered by emphasis on the more dubious aspects of it. Like they the mainstream media focused almost entirely on whether there was a basement in the in, in the oh, comet exactly. pizzeria and this sort of thing, yeah. And and then they, some excitable person went and shot up comet pizzeria, um, and of course one might even speculate that they could conceivably be MK Ultra. Oh, I mean certainly. Someone, in fact, that that was the first time that it really got into my morning newspapers. In other words, I've been seeing all these stories about Pizzagate on the fringes of the internet. But the first time I think it really got any significant coverage in my morning New York Times was when that uh, sort of that excitable guy came and like fired a weapon, you know, in the vicinity of the pizza parlor and everything like that. And also, I mean, obviously the name itself. I mean, to call something Pizzagate made it sound utterly bizarre and ridiculous. And, you know, unless somebody really looked into the details of it, it would seem something just nobody would pay any attention to. Though, I mean, one of the things that made me certainly very suspicious when I started looking into the claims is that uh, G uh, I think it's uh, 
GQ magazine, you know, a sort of leading mainstream media outlet, had actually ranked the owner of the pizza parlor as the 50th most powerful person in D.C., which, I mean, is a very, very bizarre thing for somebody who owns a pizza parlor. In other words, when you're talking about a city with, you know, committee chairmen, U.S. senators, Supreme Court justices, top administration officials in the Obama administration, and to have somebody who owns a pizza parlor ranked as one of the most powerful, influential people in D.C., you know, raises an awful lot of questions. And so, you know, things like that, again, coming from the mainstream media, tended to sort of raise the suspicions that there was a lot more there than, you know, would seem from just, you know, the nature of the story to begin with. And, and again, the, the fact that the Podesta brothers were so such powerful and influential figures and the fact that the um, uh, Tony Podesta, you know, most powerful, probably one of the very few most powerful lobbyists and wealthiest lobbyists in D.C., had such extremely strange tastes in art, with his art being then celebrated in the pages of, I think it was Washingtonian Magazine or something like that. And, you know, in other words, when, you, when you're somebody who basically focuses on art, showing children being held captive or tortured or the dead bodies of children or things like that uh, by artists who focus on that theme, it raises all sorts of very strange questions in the mind of any objective person who would look into it. And again, it was all of that sort of evidence, the visual evidence of the Podesta brothers, of the uh, social media that they were involved with, that was produced in uh, very effective YouTube videos that ended up getting hundreds of thousands or possibly even a million views before YouTube for the first time ever banned videos that did not at the time violate any of YouTube's official prohibitions. So, you know, things like that certainly raised flags in any reasonable person's mind. And then, for example, then when a um, award-winning CBS journalist, investigative journalist in Atlanta, ended up doing a broadcast story on Pizzagate, explaining that contrary to what the media claimed it had not been debunked and showing some of the evidence he was immediately then fired from a CBS outlet. So, you know, again, the way you cover up something like that is on the one hand to effectively ban the material that presents it, you know, cracking down on YouTube, cracking down the crackdown on Facebook, the crackdown on all these websites, with Google then banning, uh, deranking websites that present this material, while on the other hand, producing a vast quantity of chaff to hide the evidence of this by embedding it in a bizarre story and a bizarre QAnon story having to do with secret plots by Donald Trump, Dominion voting machines and all of that, you know, nonsense. Absolutely. And, and I think they also managed to direct people away from the background information that would make Pizzagate, allegations seem plausible, such as uh, Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal, and, and uh, the uh, John DeCamp's book, The Franklin Cover-Up. Those books make it absolutely clear that the, the Pizzagate allegations were entirely uh, plausible. But, exactly, um, exactly. I, yeah. And in so, fact, so, it was just, uh, yeah. 
Oh, it was just a few, uh, just a couple of years later, the whole Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein scandal exploded. I mean, and th- that right. really was what was so shocking to me is I'd seen all these stories of Jeffrey Epstein floating around on the internet, and the stories sounded so bizarre and so totally implausible. I never paid any attention to them. I never clicked on any of the links. I mean, the notion that one of the most expensive private homes in New York City is run by a mysterious, um, a mysterious fine, multi, uh, a mysterious near billionaire financier involved in pedophile rings or providing underage girls to top government officials or uh, wealthy celebrities or uh, you know one of the members of the British royal family who then had a with a private island and a private jet i mean it sounded so utterly bizarre something straight out of a james bond movie that i never looked into it at all never paid attention to it and then suddenly it ended up being on the front page of the new york times as a real story after which jeffrey epstein then mysteriously committed suicide in a way that very few people believe happened so uh, the whole thing about it is once you break through the sort of suspension of disbelief and recognize that a story as utterly bizarre as the Jeffrey Epstein story actually happened and had been suppressed by the media for all of those years, it obviously becomes much more plausible that similar things could be suppressed. And, you know, I I think it gave a huge boost of credibility in my own mind to the whole Pizzagate story because the stories really were quite similar that way. The other thing also about it, because I think many of the people have looked at the whole issue of, you know, these pedophile rings or underage, uh, you know, women being plied to these people in something like the wrong way. In other words, they're saying, well, it doesn't make any sense. Why would D.C. be filled with pedophiles? And what they have to really focus on is the incredible usefulness of the blackmail involved. In other words, when you're talking about people who have access to tremendous political power and also have tre- many times access to a great deal of wealth, the question is how you would be able to control such people. And the most effective way of controlling them probably would be blackmail. And so if you're talking about trying to influence or control powerful individuals, you know, senators, top government cabinet ministers, that sort of thing. Obviously, blackmail would be one of the most effective tools you would have in your kit. And so, you know, when you're looking, I mean, another example that came up, which made me extremely suspicious at the time, take someone like Dennis Haster. He was, I believe, the longest standing Republican Speaker of the House in the last 100 years. I mean, he was the Speaker of the House. He was third in line for the U.S. presidency. And, you know, at the time he ended up getting that position, you know, there were a lot of stories in the media explaining, I mean, he was a former gym coach, and, you know, a lot of stories sort of emphasized that he didn't seem especially charismatic, he didn't seem especially bright. The the question is, what was it in his background? What gave him the necessary political momentum to become Speaker of the House and to remain Speaker of the House, I believe, for about eight or nine years? third in line for the presidency. And then, after he left that position, it came out that he'd been basically involved in pedophile activities while he was a gym coach. 
and that in fact one of the one of the men he'd uh, molested ended up committing suicide over it. So, you know, it, it seemed very clear that we're talking about a situation where various individuals had absolute power of blackmail over him, and he ended up spending a few years in federal prison for, uh, you know, involved because he was paying off some of those individuals with uh, blackmail, with um, payments that were un not reported to um, the way they have to be from the bank. So the whole thing about it is when you're talking about someone who is the Speaker of the House, who is clearly under the absolute and total blackmail control of some outside parties, those are the sorts of individual those parties would want to put in a position of power. Because, you know, if you have somebody in a position of tremendous political power who is not under your control, it's entirely different than, you know, having complete blackmail control over that person. And as you say, that also ties in very much with the Franklin scandal, which I believe it had been in the early to mid-1990s. Is that correct? Or was it the late 80s? Yeah, yeah. It was it, it it broke uh, right. I think around the time of the, the savings and loan scandal in exactly the exactly. Yeah. And so there seemed to be a great deal of documented evidence that there was a pedophile ring in very senior positions in the uh, presidential administration, and also other you know powerful people in D.C. and powerful people in the media. And the whole thing about it is, you know, the percentage of Americans who would be involved in pedophile activities is extremely small. You know, it's just a tiny sliver. And when you see, for example, a much, much, much higher percentage of people at the top of political life who have been involved in that or are vulnerable to that sort of blackmail, I mean, it clearly gives, you know, a tremendous amount of evidence that this sort of blackmail lubricates the... Um, the shores of power in D.C. in the way that, you know, is obviously beneficial to the interests of the people who control that blackmail, but not beneficial to the interests of the country as a whole. And so that's why, you know, what you're really talking about is a situation where, you know, if one of once one or two of these cases come forward and it becomes very clear that the media and that powerful people had covered up these facts for years or even decades, you really become, you have to become much more suspicious that many of these other incidents are true as well. And they should certainly be investigated in the way that the media obviously does not investigate them at all. And the media, in fact, does what everything they can to cover up and control them. Uh, absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it was probably easier for the blackmailers back in the days when all sorts of sexual activities were uh, material for blackmail. And today it seems like most sexual activities are no longer such material, but certainly pedophilia still is. And uh, maybe that's one of the reasons that they've had to put all their chips in that particular basket. Uh, well, Ron, we only have a, a minute or so left. And unfortunately, we can't really get to applying your um, theory of uh, cognitive infiltration uh, in order to push uh, the most outlandish ideas in order to obscure the more sensible ones and the more likely to be true ones to the COVID issue, which is, of course, uh, one that's pretty close to your heart in that you've been pointing to the pretty solid evidence that COVID likely emerged from a U.S. bioattack on China and Iran. And uh, that, of course, has occupied a relatively small 
uh, amount of the COVID alternative discourse space. And, uh, and you probably would suspect that that might make, might be uh, no accident that it's worked out that way, but we're not really in a position to do justice to that issue because we only have a, a minute or 30 seconds or so left. So um, I guess all I can say is thank you so much for your excellent article and your excellent analyses. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up with the developments on the COVID origins issue uh, in the future. Uh, so thanks, Ron. It's always good talking with you. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, take care. It's uh, Ron Unz, publisher of the Unz Review at unz.com. Kevin Barrett here, back in the next hour with Dave Gary of American Free Press, uh, wondering if it's his fault that uh, Alex Jones got sued. Stick around.